welcome to the Vulture TV Podcast. I'm your host, Gazella Mami. On this week's show, we're talking TV series and characters we've changed our minds on as we've aged. Plus, we're joined by Homeland's female president, Elizabeth Marvel. I'm here with New York Magazine TV critic Matt Solar-Seitz. Hello, Gazelle. Hi, Matt. And Vulture TV columnist Jen Cheney. Hello, everyone. Hello, Jen. Hey, Jen. And Vulture staff writer Alex Jung. Alex, it's so great to have you back on the show. Thank you for having me, as Alex. always. <laughs> hey, Alex. <laughs> so, you know, we're gonna we're gonna get into shows that we've changed our minds on in a minute, but. We have a, a fun prompt today that we're going to kick things off with. And the prompt is, who is your biggest TV crush? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> oh How much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> I believe I'm coming down with the vapors. <laughs> I'll have to sit here on the fainting couch for a moment. <laughs> I mean, dude, this could go so many ways the way i see it you could go with your earliest crush right mm, or recent recent mm-hmm. uh most definitive if you have if there is such a person to you definitive yeah. like all like just like uh, in all terms crushes to all time or yes something? like all time like uh, consumed you your paradigmatic crush <laughs> <laughs> oh that is heavy <laughs> to quote my dad that is heavy and then we can psychoanalyze what it says about you. <laughs> oh, God. Wow. Now I don't yeah. even want to talk. <laughs> look, at, look at the time. <laughs> See ya. Well, right, who's going to go first? Well, Gazelle, you should go uh, first. Okay. I mean, I have a, I have a list, guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You came ready. Yeah. Chapter one, I am born. <laughs> well, if we want to go back to the early days of Gazelle... Zach Morris. Right, right. And I think a lot of people can probably relate to that one. Time out. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. I mean, he's a cute surfer kid on television who just Mm -hmm. kind of, I think. And he's kind of a bad boy. Kind of a bad boy, but like not too bad. Right. Good at heart. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there was something about watching him from middle school through uh-huh. high school where you kind of see him as this cute middle school kid and then he kind of grows into a man. Right. That's like very... With abs. With abs, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like he felt like a feasible crush to have at different points in your life. Right, right. But yeah, I think the crush that probably like became my biggest crush just because it happened in high school around the time when crushes are a bigger part of your life Mm -hmm. uh, would be Ben Covington on Felicity played by Scott Speedman because he was someone me and my friends obsessed over. Uh It like became a thing. Like it was like we, we felt like we were Felicity and like there was no life without Ben and we wanted to move to New York so that we could live (laughs) her life kind of. So it was almost like we had a crush on her too. Right. Um, But yeah, it would, he's a completely boring character and does not have, there's not much to Ben Covington except his very, very good looks. And you know a, what? Sometimes that's obsessive, all you need. Obsessive qualities. I mean, I had a crush yeah. on Raphael and Jane the Virgin because I was Ooh. just like, he's just hot. <laughs> <laughs> and it really gets not, it's no more complicated than that. He's a pretty nice guy. He seems to be a good dad, but mostly. He's hot. He's smoking. He's, smoking. He's, he's, <laughs> smoking. He's got the something, something to be said for simplicity. Right? In cases just like just this. get get to the core of it. <laughs> His abs are almost like 
Oh, they're too, oh they're joke ads. They are they are it's, like, like you could grate you could grate lettuce on yeah. it and make your taco sides. It's like you know on the it's, there's like they're kind of edging towards bodybuilder in this way right. that's unattractive. Right. Uh huh. Yeah. But I, take that I'll, back. Um, I actually just thought of my one of my TV crushes. Oh yeah, uh, but it, but it's going to a reference that might not be familiar to a lot of people, which was um, but it was a Korean drama called Coffee Prince, mm. which was probably one of the most important uh, Korean dramas in the past decade, uh, two decades. Um, and the it, it's a sort of a weird classic narrative of like this girl or this woman who's young and she works at a coffee shop that's for where all the waiters are very beautiful men and she passes as a guy mm-hmm. uh, as like a very beautiful guy it's like a common trope in uh, korean dramas uh-huh. that's uh kind of plays with gender in this really interesting way and so she works there and she's like uh, known as like the the pretty boy of the group and then the owner of the coffee shop is gong yu who um he was recently in trained busan which was like this korean zombie thriller it's an awesome movie. it's an amazing movie. awesome movie and watching that movie reminded me of how obsessed i am with him or what <laughs> i am with him because he's so good looking i think you showed me a picture and yeah really, and I he kind of looks like really a dinosaur hot, yeah. but i'm like into it <laughs> <laughs> you're dino chaser (laughs) but in in that show he's like the male like the protagonist that she falls in love with and he falls in love with her but he thinks that she's a guy and Mm. so there's this whole plot of like him thinking he's gay and then accepting it Ah. it's very very cool crush (laughs) (laughs) so that would be my crush (laughs) wow that was that was impressive hard hard act to follow (laughs) jen do you do you have a I, I do. I have crush. one that sort of spans across time a little bit. I think it's Jason Bateman. Mm. Oh. Uh, because I, I was reminded when I started watching him on Arrested Development that I had a crush on him when he was on Silver Spoons because Derek was always way hotter than the Ricker. I mean, that's just a fact. <laughs> There's just something about his – and I mean, I think he's an attractive guy anyway, but like – in those particular roles, both of those roles, he plays sort of the sarcastic. I mean, I guess he does that a lot, right? Um, but on Arrested Development, like very dry sense of humor. And there's mm. something about that that I find very attractive. That's a good um, one because like Alex was saying before the show, is it a, are you attracted to the character or are you attracted to the actor? Right. Yeah. I think it needs and to be the character. I, ideally, it's the about. character. And this to me, I completely get right. because I totally get the attraction to Jason Bateman's characters. So okay, so uh, going going back in the magic time machine, <laughs> uh, I would say uh, my first serious TV crush, not movie crush, but TV crush, would be um, Jan Smithers, who played Bailey Quarters on WKRP. Oh in wow, Cincinnati. what a great answer! Wow. <laughs> yeah, because you know, bless just, you for not choosing Lonnie Anderson. Well, you know, I, she was pretty cool too. I have to say, I've and maybe we'll talk about this later in the podcast about revising our opinions. But but uh, Bailey, I, you know, Bailey was like Marianne on Gilligan's Island, or like um, like the heroines of uh, Bewitched and I Dream of Jeannie. Like they seemed to have no idea how ridiculously good looking that they were, mm-hmm. you know. And Bailey was shy, and she had glasses, and she was like uh, smoking. But uh, she was a, a, a news person. She was like a trained journalist, and she she wanted Les Nessman's job. Les was completely incompetent, and somehow, you know, she was always saving his ass, you mm-hmm. know. And uh, and she was cool. She was a cool, cool, interesting character. And um, 
I think probably further along the line, like my big high school crush, TV crush, was, uh, did you ever watch Miami Vice, the original Miami Vice? Yes. Sandra, Sandi- Sandra Santiago oh, interesting. Uh, from Miami Vice, who played uh, uh, Detective uh, G- uh, Gina Calabresi, I think was her name. And uh, she was uh, uh, cool. She was just cool. She was like, uh, uh, she was a badass detective. And I remember that she often wore these long skirts with a slit up the side. And then she had a a gun that was like taped to her calf or so or like to her thigh it was to her thigh and she would like thigh is sexy she, she was yeah and she would like reach in you know she would just be like you know you're she'd reach into her into her her dress and and pull out this gun and go you're under arrest it was awesome Whoa. it was awesome well so now i know what your role play fantasy <laughs> there we go there we go well that reminds me of what my all-time girl crush is which is jennifer garner on alias mm. and i just you know, in in the way that girl crushes work, I want to be her. But also there's just something so attractive about her. There's yes. like this mix of like femininity and masculinity that I just mm-hmm. I just like Jennifer Garner is like my number one girl and crush. And cheekbones for days. Cheekbones for days. <laughs> and like all those outfits she wears, like yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's just it's like a fantasy. Yeah. <laughs> and a couple more if we if we want to talk about more recent ones. Sure. Um, Rami Malek, I I couldn't not mention him. I totally I, get that. I wrote a whole article about you did. it. <laughs> a very popular article on Vulture.com. Yeah. Yes, um, yes. And Jay Ellis on Insecure, who plays Lawrence, mm. who is just like obviously a s- stunningly attractive person. But what I like about the show is that they dress him down early on. So <laughs> yeah. it takes you a minute to realize how it, good looking it, he is. It's a surprising <laughs> moment that actually does feel, it's not like a she's all that thing yeah. where they like, it's very Rachel Lee cooked him, you know? Yes. <laughs> if that like, is a verb and, and we've decided that it is. <laughs> you but, know? Yeah, but he's like a slacker. Right. Like he doesn't pay attention to his looks, but... But then so, there's a moment where you're, you're like, like, wait, hold on. This guy is incredibly attractive. <laughs> Just a moment. Well, and it's funny because I think, I think it happens as you start to understand that he is not this simplistic slacker type yes. character right. that he's initially presented. So you find him physically attractive at the same time that you're understanding more about his personality. And that makes a big difference, too. Yes. Totally. Yes. He's also like a really um, endearing character because he seems like a really good guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, I was I was telling Gaz uh, before this that I was thinking about uh, Crashing, the British show by Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Yeah. I, I love it. I, I think it's a fantastic rom-com. It's on Netflix if you want to binge it. Um, and on it, there's Jonathan Bailey, who was also in Broadchurch. And he plays this, like, impish guy named Sam who, like, is super cocky and cocksure um, uh, and is a Lothario. Um, and he kind of plays an asshole. And I feel like he's, like, my problematic crush because I, like <laughs> – and I, he like has this yeah. charisma that I like can't get over, but at the same time he like treats this other male character like he he kind of like uh, ribs him a lot and sort of denigrates him in some ways. Yeah. But the other guy, that's kind of their like sexual dynamic. It eventually you eventually this is a little bit of a spoiler, but mm-hmm. he eventually <laughs> realizes that he's also attracted to him, and it be, they they sort of end up in the finale like. Uh, maybe going to be in a relationship or something, but mm. that that was a that that's like a recent problematic crush that I have. Ooh, I think I like the problematic crush. Idea. My 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 lots of my problematic crush is uh, Shelly Shelly Long on Cheers. Ooh, 
that's, oh, a, why that's is that problematic. Why is that problematic? Because oh my god, like she turned Sam's world upside down, shook it, and threw it against the wall, and he did the same with her. And also, she was a complete, you know, raging narcissist uh, and uh, <laughs> like a human steamroller. And I found her irresistible. <laughs> I did. I found her irresistible. But then Wait, my first my quality. Fir- so what's your problem? No, <laughs> <laughs> nothing, nothing. But my my first movie crush was Rosalind Russell and Catherine Hepburn in the screwball uh. comedies, which I used to show on Channel Thirteen. So maybe I have a type. Yes, yeah, maybe I have a type. Wait, I want to know what other people's problematic crushes are. Oh, I'm trying to think. I don't. Huh, I got to think. Problematic. You know, like Diplo is like, I feel like an er, like a very representative problematic crush on the internet where like a lot of people have problems with his sort of political representation, right. mm-hmm. right. who the kind of person he represents, but they still like kind of want to bang him. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, am I bringing this to a no. sordid level? You're bringing no, no, you're level. bringing, you're bringing the real. <laughs> that's, what's, that's what's happening. Oof. This is hard. Problematic. Yeah. Like, I think Fitz could be a problematic crush if one had. Oh, my God. You know, Fitz scandal? could totally be a problematic yeah. crush. If one liked him. Uh, <laughs> I get Fitz. I, I, I actually totally get, get Fitz. I totally get Fitz. I totally get Fitz. And that's a problem on TV shows. Like, when TV shows have an irresistible uh, uh, attraction, like one of these, like, oh, like a Diane Chambers is that kind of a character, too. You have to cast exactly the right person. Yeah. Because yeah. if people watch the show and they second guess it and they're just like, I don't believe that this other character would be would be like drawn to this mm-hmm. problematic person like a moth to to flame. Right. Then the show is in serious trouble. Right. Yeah. In serious trouble. Right. I mean, I, I think the most obvious answer to that question is Don Draper. I mean, mm. yeah. Although, then, look at he, the he, look at the guy. <laughs> you know, like I think it's that simple. I've had so many people it tell is. me in like discussions of Don Draper. It's like if he didn't look like John Hamm, there's no way that they would put right. up with him. Right. So, and it's it's true in life. Attractive people get away with a lot. Yeah, it makes Mm. sense for the character. (laughs) (laughs) It's for a role. I I, I kind of have one, but it's kind of embarrassing. Spill it. Um, And it was it, it was only for like a moment when I started. When I started getting into the voice, that I had a little crush on Blake Shelton. <laughs> oh, oh, that's not that bad. I totally get that. <laughs> He's like totally country dad. You had you you too. Yes, yes. I thought he was hot, and then I was like, oh wait, I read I his like, Twitter feed. For yeah, Kevin. exactly. He's so charismatic on the show. Though. Yeah. He's, he's so, so funny. He's so charismatic. Yeah, he's super charismatic. And him and Adam have their bromance. <laughs> <laughs> Alex isn't into it. <laughs> Not into that, but I get Blake Shelton. Well, it's like it brings out his charm, right. too. Right. But yeah, definitely. And I, I can't, I don't feel the same way about him anymore, but he was a problematic crush for a little bit. I totally support you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jen. <laughs> So, so that's this week's prompt. Uh, we would we would love to hear your TV crushes, listeners. If you would like to weigh in on this week's prompt or suggest a future prompt, please email us at tvquestions@vulture.com or leave us a voicemail at six four six five zero four seven six seven three. We'll be right back. So it's been a while since we have devoted a topic to a listener question. And today we 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 got a question that we all really liked and we thought it had enough there was enough there to to make a full topic out of it. And this one came from Diana Rogers. And Diana asked, 
What TV show have you flipped opinions on as you have aged? For example, when I first saw Freaks and Geeks as a teenager, I was really rooting for Lindsay. Now, as a 32-year-old mom, I'm furious at her for not going to math camp. Similarly, I now realize that Emily Gilmore is always right and the real heroine of the show. It's this is just like it's such a great, a great question, question. Yeah. and I also feel exactly the same way about Emily Gilmore. At the time, I when I watched it, I really identified with Lorelai because I felt stifled by my own mother. But now it's so obvious. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I would love to. Does anyone have one that they that immediately came to mind when they read this question? Well, I mentioned, you know, in the prompt, uh, well, Jen actually brought it up, mm -hmm. was uh, Lonnie Anderson on WKRP for talking about characters. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if I necessarily changed my mind, you know, uh, but I gained a, a new appreciation of that character of Jennifer on the show because at the time, all I saw was, oh, it's a joke on the dumb blonde stereotype. She's actually smart. And I didn't, I didn't see how complicated and real that character was until I grew up and got out in the world and met women who were in more or less the kind of predicament that she was in, where they were physically, you know, sort of conventionally very attractive, and they took great care of their appearance, like almost to the point of being glamorous. And that was because that was simply how they liked to look. That was how they liked to present themselves. And as a result of that, they were assumed to be dumb. They were mm -hmm. assumed to be objects. And this is a very real thing. And uh, uh, so that, you know, that's just a case of like seeing uh, seeing the trees and not the forest, I guess, or something like that. But as far as like characters that I really have changed, like changed from negative to positive or positive to negative, the big one for me is Captain Kirk on Star Trek. Mm -hmm. I, I hmm. went back and I still think that's a great show. I mean, it's an important show. I think like the only the first of the original Star Trek, the first season and maybe half of the second season are actually really great TV. And then for a variety of reasons, it starts to kind of suck. I mean, it's like fun, but it's sort of stupid fun hmm. after that. Mm -hmm. Not entirely the fault of the people making the show. But Kirk, I look at Kirk now and what I see is an apology for American excess in yeah. the 60s. Yeah. Like, I really see him. He's like Don Draper with a starship a lot of the time. And I'm not just, you know, applying like a politically correct uh, uh, 21st century reading to Captain Kirk. I accept that the entire show is a product of his time and it was very advanced for the late 60s. Mm -hmm. I just mean when you look at what Captain Kirk does, he never honors the prime directive. He's always he's always interfering in other people's cultures, and he's very paternalistic, not just towards the the people whose civilizations he interferes in, but towards his own crew. Mm -hmm. And I just found him. I mean, Shatner is great. I love him. He's his performance is wonderful, and I think the show is still watchable. But like, that's a character where I used to think he was kind of an embodiment of something very positive, and now I feel like almost everyone else in the main crew is, but not him. Mm. Hmm. That's interesting. American neo-imperialism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that's one reason that one might change their mind about a show or a person on a show is politics and how you kind of start to see the political undertones of the shows that you watched later as you get older. Right. And there's a certain amount of received wisdom that's built into a lot of TV shows. And a lot of it comes down to the fact that the structure of episodic television is always it begins with order. An element of chaos or disorder is introduced, and by the end, order is reasserted. Mm -hmm. And it's reasserted by the main characters. And a lot of these shows, the main characters are paternalistic, like guys. You mm -hmm. know, and they're cops, they're lawyers, they're mm -hmm. judges, they're detectives, whatever. 
And they're always like, they're always ultimately sort of preserving the status quo. Maybe they make a minor adjustment at the end. Like, let's all be nicer to each other from mm-hmm. now on. But like the, the system itself is never challenged. Yeah. I, I think for me, the, the things that I've changed my mind on the most have often had to do with my own ingrained sexism from when, when I was watching these things when I was younger. Like, this is a really terrible one. But like, I remember watching Home Improvement as a kid and Mm. thinking like, why is Jill with Tim? Because she's not as attractive as he is. (laughs) Interesting. It's it's such a weird, terrible thing to have thought. But like, Mm. I think- You're talking about Tim Allen, right? Tim Allen. Yeah, Tim (laughs) Allen, who was like so (laughs) unattractive. But like, I was used to to seeing people with like hot TV wives and I was like, it didn't make sense to me. And this is just like Mm. something that I realized later when I, it didn't change my mind about the show at all because it's not like it's that good of a show. No, the show is terrible. But it was just something I realized that I had thought when I was a kid and I was like, I can't believe I thought that. (laughs) Wow. Um, So yeah, it's just interesting rewatching things with kind of a more, it's because when you're a kid, like these stereotypes, Mm. you're not even, you're kind of like just being introduced to them for the first time. So you don't even really realize that <laughs> kind they're of stereotypes. baked into TV convention. Yeah. yeah. Pop you, culture generally. That, yeah, but pop culture teaches you to watch it in a certain way that yeah. it's not until you're older that when you're a kid, I feel like you're not able to be like, oh, that's bad because you, you're just learning it for the first time. And then when you're older, you're like, wait, that's obviously I've got a bad. generalized example of that. Uh-huh. <clears throat> and this is for this is in television and it's in movies and that is the 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 story in which the the um the talented iconoclast flake asshole character often played in movies in the 80s by like Bill Murray, Robin Williams, Bruce Willis, yeah. you know, people like that. There's always a scene where the bureaucrat or the rules-minded person comes in and chastises them for their Mm. maverick ways. Mm -hmm. They get dressed down for their maverick ways. And I used to respond like like a Pavlovian dog to these scenes, which Mm -hmm. is why these scenes are in these movies and they're in television shows. Like the CBS uh, procedurals, like all the CSIs have characters like that. And uh, uh, like almost every cop show has characters like that. Sometimes it's the chief. Sometimes it's the DA. Um, and they they come in and chastise the maverick cop heroes or the maverick lawyer heroes for not you know playing by the rules you know your badge my your desk what is it my your badge your gun my desk mm-hmm. you know like mm-hmm. that kind of thing. I've started to like those characters, <laughs> and I don't know if it's just like the last like uh, sixteen years of American history may have done that mm-hmm. for me, but like a uh, Patch Adams that horrible Robin Williams uh, oh, movie. God. <laughs> <laughs> was on cable not too long ago, and Phil, the late Philip Seymour Hoffman is in that movie, and he plays mm-hmm. the damn you, you can't do that character. Uh-huh. And there's a scene in there where he tells him, like, these 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 patients are terminally ill, a lot of them, and some of them are children, and, like, what we owe them as doctors is our our medical knowledge and our skill and our dedication, not our comedy. You know, mm-hmm. like, we're not comedians here. We're not running a comedy show here. And I was watching that scene going, like, I remember when I saw that movie in the theater and, like, when Robin Williams tells him off, everybody laughs and cheers. And mm-hmm. I'm listening to this guy going, like, that's the guy who should be running the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, okay. if I've got a tumor or something, I don't want Robin Williams putting an anima bulb on the end of his nose and pretending he's a clown. I want Philip Seymour Hoffman reading a freaking chart. Right. You know? Yeah. Right. I right. mean, American narratives are obsessed with individual exceptionalism. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think they try to, like, like celebrate and heroicize that at every opportunity. 
Yeah. And at the end, the Maverick gets a slow clap. Right. They get a slow clap. Everybody stands up and gives them a slow clap. Yeah. Yeah. And one by one, everybody stands up and joins the slow clap. <laughs> it's, it's funny because our, our reader, I think, specifically mentioned watching something as a parent and having a different mm. perspective on it. Mm-hmm. And the first thing I thought of was watching some of the John Hughes movies again uh, as an adult. Like I, I wrote a piece for The Dissolve, a site that sadly no longer exists, uh, about rewatching The Breakfast Club and really watching it from the perspective of, of the principal uh, and the parents yeah. and seeing it totally differently than I did as a kid. So that you just you, you have a completely different window into something uh, when when you have a child and now you're watching the way these those, those movies are framed that you're you're always on the kid's side, on the teen side. And, and they should be because they're for teenagers. But I do think they did a good job of kind of giving a little bit of nuance. Um, there's that scene between um, Principal Vernon uh, and John Capello's character, Carl, the janitor, where they're talking. That's a great scene. Um, yeah. And a scene that I didn't, you know, kind of flew by when I was uh, younger and I saw that movie. But I, I watch it now and I just see a lot, a lot in it. So that struck me and uh, about this question. But in terms of TV characters, one that I was thinking about, too, because they were recently doing a marathon of um, the first season of Twin Peaks on Showtime. And so I was watching a little bit of that and remembering how annoyed I was by Sarah Palmer when I initially watched it, because especially in the early episodes, I mean, Grace Zabriskie's performance is all crying and yelling Leland and clawing at her hair yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then watching it now, I'm just like, my God, that is just such it's incredible work, first of all. Yeah. And then not not to spoil Twin Peaks for anyone, although honestly, the statute of limitations is way up. Um, <laughs> but but watching it also when you know what actually happened to Laura Palmer gives you a totally different perspective on it what it is does. she's doing. It does. Although she wouldn't have had it in those early performances because they didn't know yet who the murderer was either. But nevertheless, like it, it gives it a whole nother layer that, you know, you can't just brush that performance away as this is annoying screeching. It's there's something more deep going on there. No. And that's also a case where I think like the show is deeper than the people who think that they're completely onto what the show is doing. Mm-hmm. You know, like I remember I saw that in college when it first came on. And when you see a show like that and you're like, you know, 21, 22 years old, when you see a character like Grace Zabriskie's uh, character just being a big walking exposed nerve like that, like she, it's a kabuki level performance of of a grieving parent. You laugh, you laugh because it's uncomfortable and you don't know what else to do, or you laugh because you've never seen anybody act that way because you're a stupid kid, you know. Right. But like getting older, I've I've been her and I've seen people in that situation before, and it's like it seems now it seems like documentary realism to mm. me. Um, when you first uh, r- told me about this question, the first show that I, I thought of that I have like a kind of personal, I guess I've had a personal evolution around, shall we say, was uh, Girls. Because when it first aired, I was right around, I think, the characters' ages. And I only watched the pilot and I had deep problems with it. And part of it was, I uh, for me, like it was sort of the... Um, like one of the final scenes where uh, she's uh, greeted by like a homeless black guy who tells her to smile. And th- and that like scene really like like was like a needle to me because right. it it represented a lot of the problems that I felt like the show had and a lot of the sort of criticism that had been levied at the show right. very, very early on. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, I think I think girls came like it came on TV at a time when think pieces and Twitter 
was first gaining its eminence in pop culture right mm-hmm. in a, to a certain degree um and i feel like i got swept away with that and it became a maelstrom that i just sort of couldn't get out of like i couldn't see past it and it became very difficult for me to care about the show or to watch it because of that and then like gaz is a total stand for <laughs> for girls and uh we uh went I, I don't know if I can we, share this. We, we went, went on a trip we recently to together. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, we watched uh, the first season of Girls. And I loved it. I, I like. I, it I feel was one like of I, the best moments of my life. <laughs> 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 I felt like I, I, I think I had enough maybe distance in some ways to actually watch the show the yeah. way it was meant to have been watched. Yes, and and to sort of separate myself from my own kind of like uh, emotional triggers around mm-hmm. what what I perceived as some, some of the flaws around the show. Um, and I sort of I think it's brilliant. Like I think the first season is a brilliant. A piece of TV making, yeah. Um, and I, I recognize that it was really much because of who I was at the time and how I was sort of interpreting it through the lens of like, you know, the internet in a lot of ways. I, I wrote a piece for Vulture not too long ago about um, revisiting Todd Solondz's movie Happiness, which I banned right. when it came out, right. and and uh, seeing the sequel, which was made like. 12 years later, I think, Life During Wartime. And I saw that and was like, God, this is a brilliant film. That was one of my favorite movies of that year. And I thought, how could I like this movie and not like the original that it's sort of a sequel to? And I went back and watched the original. Like, this is also a great movie. What, what was my problem? And mm-hmm. I eventually discovered that there were all sorts of subjective, personal, circumstantial reasons why at that particular moment when I saw Happiness, I didn't like it. The reason I'm telling you this is I think there's a very Todd Solancian sensibility to a lot of girls, huh. mm-hmm. you know, where you're sort of you are sympathetic to the characters and yet you're also standing outside of them mercilessly scrutinizing all of their flaws. Mm-hmm. And there's a sense in which I think the show is very empathetic and kind of sadistic at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yes. At the same time is the key phrase. Like you cannot separate. It's not like the moment where you're supposed to feel for Hannah or any of the other characters is separate from you're sitting there going, what an idiot she is. You know, what a, what a selfish person she is. They're, it's all bundled up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's one of, one of the reasons why that show is like nails on a chalkboard for a lot of viewers. Like, I really think the show knows that these are pampered, narcissistic, it does. you know, it's insular um, <laughs> characters. Uh, and yet it still kind of insists on, on a core of humanity for them. So... I'm I'm also I'm also a hopeless defender of that show. <laughs> I'm with you all now. <laughs> I love that we're having this conversation because I think there's this misperception sometimes that you know critics are very stubborn and they get ideas in their head and then they just they will never listen if somebody says something is good and and this whole conversation is emblematic of the fact that you know taste change or your reaction to something mm-hmm. changes over time and that we're all yeah. open minded to that and and revisiting our opinions which I think is a positive thing. Yeah. And the happiness thing is interesting to me because I, I remember I watched ha- when I watched happiness and I sort of want to revisit it now because I, I did not like it when I first watched it. Interesting. But it does share, I think, like the girls thing about there's an ugliness there or it sort of like almost revels in a kind of ugliness and forces you to to really look at it. Yeah. Uh, that you that I think is reflective of you know, the ugliness that you might feel inside about your own self. Mm. Um, and I, I, that's certainly true of girls, like the, the sort of narcissistic millennial qualities that I yeah. share <laughs> or yeah. have with those characters is probably part of what, uh, 
what was part of my resistance to well, wanting what, to watch it. That's what, that's one of the reasons why I, I have a, uh, you know, I'm really not a contemptuous laugher. But one exception to that is whenever I hear somebody um, describe the characters on girls as pampered uh, liberal elites. And then I look at the profile of the person who's making the accusation. It's like they live in Park Slope and they write for the frickin Atlantic or something. And it's like, you know, like and, and like I'm glad the word hipster seems to have been semi retired. Uh huh. Um, because it's one of those words that like means whatever you want it to mean, and it never means you, right? Right. You know, right. yeah, yeah. It's like if you went to a repertory film in a theater in the last two years, you may be a hipster. <laughs> you may be. <laughs> Speaking of girls, too, I in rewatching it with Alex, I I found myself liking Adam a lot more than I did initially i mean i loved adam but, and I like part it. of it was yeah. i think you loved him so much and i was like <laughs> he, he is really great and like i i had always seen him as kind of the worst one in the hannah adam relationship hmm. but huh. now i see hannah as the way worse one <laughs> right like adam is weird yes but like he never does anything he like he never does anything that i he, he's actually very kind right and I don't know. Sometimes I, I, you can't control his his anger. His anger, his darker the, emotions. The sex stuff can get kind of weird, but like none of that seems to me like it. I don't know. I think he feels more honest about his emotions to me. Yes. Whereas Hannah will always sort of hide or lie to herself, even about what how she's feeling or what she wants and what she expects of him. Whereas I feel like Adam was always very clear about those things. I also um, think they started to write that character in a more effective way. Because like, yeah. I had yeah. the similar, a similar response in the first, I don't know, first half maybe of the first season where I thought he was kind of creepy. But as he evolved more and you got to know him better, I, he became my favorite character on the show. Well, I sort of felt like that was, that was actually a really clever writing thing, writing that they did. Whereas you sort mm -hmm. of saw Adam first through Hannah's mm -hmm. perspective. And so you didn't really understand where the neuroses came from. And then... Once the latter half of the season, you sort of then shifted perspectives and pivoted to seeing him, then you understood. It, it sort of clarified the first half of the season where you understood right. why he was acting the way he did. There's an amazing line at the end of the first season, I think, where what does he say before he gets hit by the car? He's like, you're a monster <laughs> yeah. to Hannah. And it's so true. <laughs> <laughs> and you, I really felt for him in that moment. I love and that, that this, was the turning point for I me. I love that this uh, this segment has become a referendum on girls. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it speaks highly of the show. It's a show of our of, time. You can have these kinds of discussions. Well, of our time that has passed, probably. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how many shows like girls are going to be uh, uh, greenlit during the Trump administration. Uh, maybe well, lots. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We'll be back in just a minute with Elizabeth Marvel. Elizabeth Marvel is a veteran of stage and screen that you've seen in many films and TV shows over the years, including Burn After Reading, Lincoln, the second season of Fargo, and Law & Order SVU. You may know her best, though, for her role as Heather Dunbar, who attempted to challenge Frank Underwood for the Democratic presidential nomination in the most recent season of House of Cards. Now she's playing a president-elect, Elizabeth Keene, in the current season of Homeland. She joins us to talk about that role, among other things. Elizabeth, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So full disclosure to our listeners, you will hear this podcast a few days after the presidential inauguration, but we're recording on the morning of Inauguration Day, uh, which is relevant because Homeland this season takes place in the transition period between Election Day and Inauguration of, of your character. Right. Uh, I'm wondering, 
How much did you have to study about the transition process in order to prepare for playing a role that's so specifically set in that transition period? I I read a lot, and uh, I contacted a few people I know in D.C. that I I got to know during cards um, to talk about it, uh, because it, it was something that I knew nothing about. And honestly, I don't know... If most Americans were that highly attuned to the transition period, it's usually a time that's kind of that happens quietly, uh, kind of to the side. And it's it's mainly about a lot of people, you know, being lined up for for a lot of jobs. And, and really, the only thing that we tend to tune into is are the, the hearings for the cabinet. Um, mm-hmm. So I I read some terrific books and. Right now, I cannot remember the names of them, but they were specifically about the, it's, uh, the presidential. Uh, just, just so the listeners know, it's it's it's, uh, it's nine early. in the morning, and none of us have had coffee. So that's right. This is well, I'm drinking coffee. Well, you're well, drinking how nice coffee. For you. Yes, how nice yes. for you. How nice for you. So, so yeah, uh, it it um, it has been fascinating, and you know, listen, I I am an expert on absolutely nothing except myself and <laughs> maybe my 10-year-old son who would argue with me about that but um what are some particular like little things that you learned from that like little oddities and well stuff? you know one thing is uh the PDB that's the presidential daily brief and how that uh sort of transforms uh depending on the individual that's coming into office um I learned a lot about the the different styles and the way the intelligence community adapts to the individual, um, which is fascinating because I just assumed that there was a standard set of behaviors and traditions, how that kind of information was given, um, but it's not true. For instance, you know, George W. was a, a individual who was very physically restless, couldn't really sit still. And so they eventually got one briefer to deliver, you know, the information to their top customer, which is their terminology for the president. Top um, customer, wow. The top customer. <laughs> That's right. Um, and often that briefer would go jogging with George W. or go to the gym. And that's how he uh-huh. received the PDB. Um, wow. Yeah. I mean, it, and, and each each individual has their own style. I'm super curious to see what our president-elect's style will be. Who, who, uh, who, would, you, who would you rather uh, serve under in an administration, uh, uh, Donald Trump or Frank Underwood? Frank Underwood in a heartbeat. <laughs> <laughs> in a heartbeat. He's so much nicer. Doesn't he seem nicer? He's so, so much kinder and such a <laughs> more decent human being. <laughs> I have to say, so, this is, you know, I, I had a wonderful, uh, one of the best conversations I ever had about acting, about the business of acting, was about 20 years ago, I interviewed the actor Martin Donovan. Mm, and somehow this, uh, somehow things veered wildly off topic, and we started talking about casting and typecasting, and he said, uh, I said, yeah, it was basically like, ask Martin Donovan anything. And I, <laughs> and I said, okay, so here's, here's something I always want to know. How do you see, how is it that certain actors have played like 14 cops or 39 right, judges? Right. And he said, it's very simple. The casting director looks for somebody who seems like they can handle that part. And that's why people keep often getting offered the same roles. Mm-hmm. I bring this up because 
this isn't typecasting yet. You've only played you've only played this kind of role twice, but this is the most specific uh, kind of role that I've ever seen somebody play twice in a high profile way. Yes, yes. This is a very this is very very specific here. What you're doing? That is true. What are what are your feelings about that? <laughs> it it absolutely fascinates me because, as you can see, unlike people who are just listening, I don't look presidential. I don't come across as particularly presidential in my personal life. Um, I don't wear, you know, three-piece suits and have my hair perfectly coiffed. I'm um, I'm a little disheveled this morning. Uh, so it's interesting. I think, you know, I can't, I can't speak to why that is my current commodity, as it were, in, in this industry that I'm in. Um, I'm unbelievably grateful that it is because it's it's fascinating playing the leader of the free world it's fascinating playing the first woman uh as the leader of the free world um and it's a wonderful moment to be doing that but why you know uh i think there is a certain gravitas about me i i have my energy can be very big and yet uh contained um, but you know, you'd, I, 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 I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I, I really think you have an authoritative quality, mm-hmm. like even in your voice that yes. if, like, if you told me to do something, I'd feel like I should do it. <laughs> <laughs> would you please talk to my son? Please. <laughs> it would be so helpful because I use the big, low, scary voice at home and it doesn't work. <laughs> Ten-year-olds are another animal. That is true. He's like, oh, mommy's just playing the president. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, he's sort of like that may fly at work, but <laughs> the suit is off. <laughs> you mentioned um, you know, playing a female president right now, mm. and it's my understanding that Elizabeth Keene wasn't necessarily based on any one person that she's sort of a composite, but That's right. I was reading an interview that you did where you said you based her a little bit on Congresswoman Shirley Chisholm, That's right. uh, who was the first African-American woman to serve in Congress, and a little bit on George W. Bush, who you mentioned earlier, which is an interesting combination to me. Yes. Um, how did you settle on those two figures in terms of uh, inspiration for her? Well, uh, you know, it's sort of what I do. I, I approach characters in very odd ways. Um, they they sort of are a, a mosaic project for me. I find little pieces of tile all different colors, different patterns from all over the place. Um, sometimes it's a painting that I see, you know, at MoMA, and that becomes a core, or it's music that I tune into, um, and often it's it's a it's a mesh of many things. And for this one, um, because there's so much uh, political rhetoric involved, um, I really wanted to find some sources and. I began with Shirley because uh, she's always been a great inspiration to me in general as a as a woman on the planet. Um, and I started reading her, more about her story and more about her writings. And it was a great foundation. Uh, she's someone, you know, who was dignified and disciplined. And those are qualities that I really wanted to use for this individual that is Elizabeth Keene. Um, but there also is something very untethered and energetic and uh, impossible to contain or predict about her. Uh, and doing my research, I found that there was a, a lot of that with when W first took office that was 
very, very useful. Um, and yet, you know, he came from a tradition of government. Uh, so it, it wasn't someone who was completely outside the universe of our political system. But, you know, then I also read a, a lot about Bobby Kennedy uh, and his facility with language, especially spontaneously, um, which has been very useful. I read a lot about FDR and his sort of natural charm offensive with people, mm -hmm. uh, which has been very useful. So I've pulled from from many different sources to create this animal that is Elizabeth Keene, because she is a, a true maverick, and we really have never seen anyone like her on the political stage. Um, she's very, she's full of surprises, as you guys will see. <laughs> when you are, when you are, you're constructing a performance, when you're constructing a character, you have all these ideas, you're trying to piece them together, and you're obviously when you get on the set, it's a different story. Yep. Like you have to adapt, but hopefully if everything goes well, there's a moment where things click for you and you think, okay, I can do this. Yeah. Did you have moments exactly like right. that? Did you have moments like that playing each of these presidents? Well, or presidential uh, candidates. I was going to say, yeah. the, it's a big difference because Heather Dunbar on cards n never made it. Yeah. She lost and she went down in flames, um, which is a very different story to tell. And, and this one, I, you know, I've won. When I begin, I've won. And that is such a different state to be in. Um, and they're, they're very different women as well. But yes, I, I have to say the first day of filming, um, I got to set and I was working with Mandy Patinkin and F. Murray Abraham, um, which, you know, it doesn't get any better. It was fantastic. And uh, I was very excited to work with them. I was really pumped and I just kind of dominated the room that day. Right. And I and it just clicked in and I thought, okay, all right, I think I, I got this. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm wondering at what point were you all in shooting or were you completely done when the actual election took place? We're still filming. We You're still, still have, filming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have three more to go. That's interesting. Have mm. there been any, any yeah. adjustments as a result of the? Uh, that's what, yeah. That's what I was going to ask. What you know, things These... happening that maybe weren't what you thought were going to happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it, you know, interesting because the conversation at times has been a um, you know a little reductive in in certain circumstances because there's been an immediate association with uh, me portraying. Hillary Clinton. Um, and it's it's not that story that we're telling. It never was. I even think when they were casting, they were looking at men and women, that it wasn't a gender-based um, mm -hmm. choice. That's that interesting. It was just looking for the right person. Um, so, so we began sort of outside of that anyway. I... I have no doubt that things have affected the script. I know the writers are still in the writing room and they've they've they continue to tweak and like right now at 9 like right on a now. Friday. Well, I don't know because they're in L.A., <laughs> but, you know, they may have pulled it all night. I don't know. It's entirely possible on this show. They just keep going at it. Um, so, sure, I have no doubt that current events are are feeding their, you know, their brains. As well, I'm just wondering how it affects your performance too. I mean, in terms of the mm -hmm. common common ground, you know, Elizabeth is is uh, 
you know, she's questioning a lot of things that are happening in the intelligence community. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and and that's the most clear parallel, which I guess was uh, at least in part accidental. But mm-hmm. um, how does it affect how you approach your performance or does it? Do you just continue on? I. I kind of just continue on. I mean, I've been I've been mapping this person as we go. Uh, Something that's interesting is they don't on this show. They do not give you the information ahead of time. I've read that. That's interesting. Yeah, it is. Because on cards, they talked me through the entire season before we started shooting. They sat me down. They walked me through it each year. They'd walk me through it. This one, you learn as you go. And so uh, it actually has been very helpful and useful for me because this is someone who is stepping into a situation of, you know, international whack-a-mole and she's just going. And so um, getting these scripts and having to kind of just lock them in and go on first impulse is actually, you know, kind of energetically very useful and and right. Mm -hmm. Um, Right. but, But has it... Has what what is happening in our national stage affecting what what I'm doing? Um, not so much because I'm not you know I'm not playing our president elect per se. I'm I'm playing someone who's in many of similar situations, making different choices. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. You mentioned earlier when you were talking about building the character uh, and where you get inspirations from, you, you mentioned MoMA. Uh-huh. Uh, and I believe you you were originally planning to be a visual artist. That was your That's initial right. interest before you got into acting. Yep. Um, how does that continue to inform what oh, you what do as an actor? Question. That's such a great question. I, um, I, it's interesting because I actually just recently interviewed Tom Hardy and, I, and he showed me drawings that he makes before oh, he plays a role. Cool. Yes. Just, oh, wow. For some reason, it never occurred to me that that could be part of the process. Yes. Is oh, that, absolutely. Do you do that? Uh, I don't do characters, um, but I do sketch a lot. Yeah. Um, and I sketch people a lot. It does. Uh, you know, I, I'm I'm a hypervisual person um, and, you know, tend to be by nature. My default place is a very introverted one. So it's it's funny to be in such an extroverted profession. I'm a little inappropriately in it, but I'm in a highly visual medium. And, you know, the mm-hmm. first the first moment I go on any set, I check in with with camera and the camera crew and I I get right in there because not that I, I, I just want to see, I want to learn. I want to understand, um, what it looks like. Looking at the uh, shot, looking at the, the the way it's lit, mm -hmm. the way the camera moves, Mm -hmm. that that helps your performance? It truly does. What does it contribute to your performance? It just contributes a, a, a visual understanding of, of what that, because it's a, it's a, it's an eye that's watching you. Uh, it's not personal, but it is uh, an eye that's seeing you, and to understand what the the parameters are that that eye is seeing is is very useful to understand. Because I'm someone that came up in theater, which is a completely different canvas than television, and and so to understand what, you know, what the shot is, how tight it is on my face will really give me parameters on, you know, what I can and and can't do. Well, if you, you know, to take it, to take it back to visual art for a second, if, you know, there are obviously clear differences from one painter to the next. Mm -hmm. How would you describe the differences between the eye 
of House of Cards and the mm. Eye of Homeland. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I would say Cards, uh, they're both, Cards has a sheen to it. It's got a glean. Um, there's, a, there's a sharp edge and a shine that's constantly present. Um, with Homeland, it's much more documentary, natural light, um, faces moving in and out of shadow. Uh, so the, the light is very different and, and energy is light. Light is energy. And so it affects. How, how does the differences uh, that you've just described affect your performances in each of those shows? The tone of it or the vibe of it? Right. Um, well, the landscape of cards is a, is a very Shakespearean one, if that makes sense. It's, it's got a grandeur. It's almost a royalty to it, um, and it's very rich. And Homeland is very docudrama. It's very raw. It's very present. Um, it's very, very natural. Lots of natural light. Lots of com you know. It's it it. That's that's the best way I can explain it. It's is like docudrama in real time. And as an actor, that's that. What what is? How does that guide you? I mean, mm -hmm. you must you must make some choices as a result of that. Absolutely. It's interesting because a lot of it, too, is based on the actors. And I've been given two casts of actors that are the best. I mean, just the best. On Cards, I, I got to work with Kevin most of the time. He was my acting mate. And um, it doesn't get any better than that. It was fantastically fun. And there was a wit and a, a focus on language and wordplay with, with Cards. With Homeland, I work a lot with Murray and Mandy and Claire, and there's an intensity, and there's a conversationality, and there's a spontaneity, um, but a constant containment uh, that is really interesting and wonderful. If you were able to put uh, Elizabeth Keene and Heather Dunbar, if they were in the same room, mm -hmm. do you think they would find some political common ground or that they would oh, uh, potentially like each other? Uh, yes, yes. Um, you know, because they're two women that have found their seats at the table or as Shirley Chisholm would say, have brought their own folding chair. And, uh, <laughs> and so, you know, I think there's an immediate recognition and respect for anyone who's gotten in the room, you know, where the sausage gets made. It's just that one got eaten alive by the process and one was the victor and and so you know would would uh elizabeth Keene bring heather dunbar onto her team very possibly very very mm -hmm. possibly because she's a smart savvy woman the only the, the the criticism that i have of heather dunbar was i i she started to believe her own you know righteousness a little too much and she had no sense of humor. <laughs> and I think I think that's a really fundamental quality for all humans, but certainly one in the political arena. And it's something that I'm I've enjoyed very much about Elizabeth Keene is uh she's very cheeky. Mm -hmm. If if you were asked to play another president or presidential <laughs> candidate, would you would you say no thanks? I, I gave it the office twice. Or? How could I? I mean, it's fantastic. I, you know, it, it's not every day that as a woman you get to run the show. Hmm. You know, it's a it's a deeply satisfying experience, and you know, uh, I get to say amazing things and do incredible things. So. 
And, and I can do different accents. So I can play the prime minister, the queen, or, you know, the leader. <laughs> there you I go. Know, France, whatever, whatever. Oh, my God. Bring it on. Game of Thrones next, <laughs> There maybe. you go. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be the queen of, I don't know, what do they do? A poisoned realm. There you go, of a poisoned realm or the the queen of the vampires, whatever. Yes. <laughs> I just need to rule. Wherever I am, Elis- I must dominate. Elizabeth Marvel is the queen of the vampires is a show I would very much like <laughs> right? to see. Right? Right. <laughs> yes. Well, th- that question raises something that... Um, you know, I think anybody who covers television or entertainment is trying to wrap their heads around, which is what are things going to look like uh, under this new administration? Yes. Um, you know, we've seen a lot of female presidents and presidential candidates on TV in the past mm-hmm. uh, year or so, not just your shows, but also on Veep and Scandal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, is that a trend that you think will continue or or will we go the other way? I do. I mean, there's no doubt we're going to need a lot of comedy. <laughs> without a doubt um but yes and and i'm very very you know i'm proud of it and i'm excited by it because i've said this before i I, i'm a believer that if you can see it you can be it and messaging uh females in positions of political power um and uh, is is wonderful at this moment in time and, and really important and really exciting. And the more we normalize that on television, um, mm-hmm. the sooner it's going to come. What, what does your shirt say? It says feminist. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, I am. <laughs> no, well, I mean, I don't even know if this is a question you can necessarily answer at this point. Um, but it's, it's a, a follow-up to the last one, which is, you know, I think we're all trying to figure out, too, how, how TV shows will directly uh, address Trump, you know, mm-hmm. as you were saying before, Homeland, you know, is is doing it in ways that maybe when we talk about it, it's reductive um, and it wasn't necessarily intentional. But I think more mm-hmm. more creators are going to be doing it in a, in a probably an intentional way. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And I don't know if you have any sense at this point whether we're, we'll be seeing more of that sort of thing. You know, I really, I, I really don't. Um, there's no question that there are there are uh, topics and parallels that reveal themselves on our show uh, that are in alignment with things that are happening um, in our current environment. And yes, of course, I think that uh, dialogue will continue to happen on film in film and television as this landscape unfolds in front of us um because that's what we do we respond to the world we are responders we're we're like we're we're the first responders us (laughs) and and it's in the dna of what we do we are the empaths we watch and we take that and then transform it into something that is useful so yes i have no doubt that you will see um, these these issues in the stories that that are coming. Um, it's just the the beauty that we have as artists is that we can we can take it because we're not the news. We mm-hmm. we take it and then we get to make it something that brings us closer to our to our true selves and our hearts. Um, we're not trying to reenact. We're trying to get at something deeper. Right. Well, I think that's going to be really important going forward, obviously. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Elizabeth, for being here with us. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. That's just about it for this week's show. But before we go, it's time for this week's Aria. This week, it's Matt's turn. The Donald Trump era began with a bizarre speech. 
Bizarre, because it was delivered by a president who had won the electoral college vote, though not the popular vote, yet it sounded like the grumblings of a warlord, a conqueror speaking not to every American, though in theory that's what he was doing or thought he was doing, but only to those who elected him, and who, in Trump's mind at least, saw him as a champion, a deliverer, or at very least a human hand grenade hurled into the gears of a machine that had abandoned them, At least, that's the line we're being sold for a while by pundits advising that people who voted for Clinton reach out to the other side, mend fences, find common ground, that kind of thing. Well, no common ground was possible here. Listen to this language. But for too many of our citizens, a different reality exists. Mothers and children trapped in poverty in our inner cities, rusted out factories scattered like tombstones across the landscape, of our nation, an education system flush with cash, but which leaves our young and beautiful students deprived of all knowledge. And the crime and the gangs and the drugs that have stolen too many lives and robbed our country of so much unrealized potential. This American carnage stops right here and stops right now. Then, incredibly, things got even weirder. Millions of people, mainly women, converged to march in protest of Trump's misogyny and his administration's hostility to their interests. His leaked comments to former infotainment show host Billy Bush came back to haunt him, finally. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. You just kiss I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab him by the pussy. The distaste for Trump was so vast, the numbers in Washington and throughout North America, indeed around the world, dwarfed the attendance at the new president's inaugural by a factor of five. As predicted, Trump lashed out. Speaking at CIA headquarters in front of a wall dedicated to those who had been killed during covert actions, he made the march all about Donald Trump. And I was explaining about the numbers. We did a, we did a thing yesterday, the speech. Did everybody like the speech? You had a lot. So I've been given good news. But, but we had a massive field of people. You saw that. Packed. I get up this morning, I turn on one of the networks, and they show an empty field. I said, wait a minute. I made a speech. I looked out. The field was... It looked like a million, million and a half people. And his White House spokesperson, Sean Spicer, gave an extraordinary, well, press conference seems like the wrong word, alternate universe scenario in which Trump's inaugural was far better attended than the evil media and apparently aerial photographs indicated. Photographs of the inaugural proceedings were intentionally framed in a way in one particular tweet to minimize the enormous support that had gathered on the National Mall. This was the first time in our nation's history that floor coverings have been used to protect the grass in the mall. That had the effect of highlighting any areas where people were not standing, while in years past, the grass eliminated this visual. This was also the first time that fencing and magnetometers went as far back on the wall, preventing hundreds of thousands of people from being able to access the mall as quickly as they had in inaugurations past. Inaccurate numbers involving crowd size were also tweeted, No one had numbers. Why am I talking about Donald Trump on a podcast about television? Because Donald Trump is a creature of television. 
The incarnation of Trump that won the Electoral College vote was invented on NBC, on his reality series The Apprentice, which he continues to receive money from in his capacity as an executive producer. How strange is that? Very strange. Imagine watching a television show four years ago that ended with executive produced by Barack Obama, or one 12 years ago that ended with executive produced by George W. Bush. You can't imagine that. Nobody would have tolerated it. This is a classic conflict of interest. But we can't be surprised by it because Trump is a creature of television, a tentacled creature, a science fiction monstrosity who seems to absorb whatever ridicule and discrediting that the media and his opponents hurl at him, only to emerge from a cloud of smoke and fire, even larger, with more tentacles this time, like the mutant telekinetic shapeshifter in the Japanese animated classic Akira. If you're watching this, it means you're probably on social media and you own a television and maybe you even read a newspaper, who knows? So I'm not telling you anything that you haven't already heard when I tell you that according to some estimates, the new president of the United States is in debt to the tune of anywhere from $750 million to $1.25 billion around the world to bankers and investors in many countries. Yet he refuses to truly divest himself from his businesses, instead turning them over to a so-called blind trust that is operated by his adult children. This, of course, is not a trust, and certainly not blind. And it's of a piece with Trump's entanglements with NBC, which aired Celebrity Apprentice, a second version of Trump's show, and that continues to air it, although with Arnold Schwarzenegger in place of Trump. I think bringing the show to Los Angeles is going to be a refreshing kind of a thing. It will have a fresh look, the office will be bigger, the doors will be bigger. When you see the doors swing open and I walk in, there's a kind of Terminator-type doors, they're not just these flimsy doors that are flying. And it's of a piece with Trump's appearance in 2015 on Saturday Night Live, which he guest-hosted, despite having actively declared himself interested in pursuing the Republican nomination for president. Many of the greats have hosted, as you know, this show, like me, in 2004. <laughs> A lot of people are saying, Donald, you're the most amazing guy. You're brilliant, you're handsome, you're rich, you have everything going. The world is waiting for you to be president. So why are you hosting Saturday Night Live? Why? And the answer is, I have really nothing better to do. And, of course, there was his appearance on NBC's The Tonight Show, where Jimmy Fallon, salacious crumb to Trump's Jabba the Hutt, treated him like an adorable grandfather and mussed his cotton candy hair. Donald, I, I want to ask you, because the next time I see you, 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 you could be the president of the United States. I just wanted to know if there's something we could do that's just not presidential, really, or something that, that we can do now that we're just both civilians. Like... <laughs> Like what? This is... Can I, I'm not liking the sound of this. Go ahead. Can I mess your hair up? This is not the past, by the way. None of these clips from other years are really the past. No, this is the future. Our future. A television monster inhabits the White House and continues to be financially entangled with the medium that gave birth to his presidential candidacy. NBC has a news division. NBC also has a cable news network. Two, really, if you count CNBC, which also covers Trump. 
and every quarter it cuts a check to the President of the United States. He gets that money, regardless of what verbal curly cues he offers in an attempt to justify why this is not a conflict of interest. He is television. And, of course, he's the number one attraction on television. By the time you hear this, we will be less than a week into the Trump presidency, and not a minute will have gone by that there hasn't been a gaffe, an outrage, a moment of surreality or nonsense, or a hint of menace. President Trump is what's on TV. We don't dare change the channel. The question is, are we all okay with it? With these new standards, or lack of standards? Is everything entertainment to us now? Is nothing real? Is it all a big, crazy, huge show? Stay tuned. That's it for this week's show. The Vulture TV podcast is produced by Jordan Bell. Laura Mayer is our director of production, and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. I'm Gazella Mami, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellephant. I'm Matt Zeller Seitz, and I was in the middle of a bite of bagel. But you can reach me on Twitter at Matt Zeller Seitz. I'm Jen Cheney, and I'm not eating anything. And you can find me on Twitter at Cheney J. And I'm Alex Jung, and you can find me on Twitter at E underscore Alex Jung. Mm-hmm.